Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jack Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The catalogue is out for the 2021 English Classic Yearling Sale. In total, 803 yearlings have been catalogued, 620 in the main book, 183 in the highway session. The sale will run from February the 7th to February the 9th at Riverside and will be preceded by the running of the $2 million English Millennium at Randwick on the Saturday. 108 stallions will be represented at the classic sale, including 22 first season sires. 87% of the yearlings are Bob's eligible, while there are yearlings catalogued eligible for Vobus, QTIS, West Speed, and also the South Australian Breeders and Owners Incentive Scheme. Since 2018, English auctions have produced 53 Group 1 winners. In the last four years, the Classic Sale has produced the winners of a Melbourne Cup, a Golden Slipper, an Everest, a Blue Diamond, a Randwick Guineas, and a Victoria Derby. Grab your copy of a catalogue bursting with quality. The English Classic Sale 2021. As the new year begins, Tommy Berry is approaching his 30th birthday and finds himself in a cosy niche among Sydney's top jockeys. With the 2020-2021 season halfway through, he's in second place on the New South Wales Premiership ladder and second on the Metro list. Last season, he finished third in the state with 112 winners and third on the Metro tracks with 76. His Group 1 tally, including Hong Kong victories, sits at a very impressive 32 with an overall win tally of well over 1,200. Tom enjoys the support of many leading stables and through the racing media, he gives a lot back to the industry that's been so good to him. He suffered a major setback in 2014 when he lost his twin brother Nathan to a rare illness and only last year had to seek the help of a sports psychologist to guide him through an emotional rough patch. You'd never know when Tommy Berry has issues of his own because he doesn't bring his troubles to work. He's always pleasant, he's always polite and perfectly suited to his role as one of racing's best ambassadors. Tom has come a hell of a long way since the day in Riley's paddock near Warwick Farm Racecourse when Paul Cave's stable pony did his utmost to turn him off horse riding forever. Tommy, thanks for being one of our very first guests in 2021. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure, John. Thanks for having me on the show. You're in a very strong jockey's pool in Sydney and there's no such thing as resting on your laurels. Your weight's got to be right and your attitude's got to be right. Yeah, that's that's 100%. It's, uh, it's a package deal when it comes to being um, a top jockey in Sydney or anywhere around the world. and um, You learn that very quickly and if you are, uh, if you just rely on your ability, then you get found out quite quickly. Mm. Um, and you know that we've seen definitely plenty of jockeys um, suffer that over the years. But uh, for me, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a combination of me having my body right, um, 
making sure I'm right on the day, but more more importantly, making sure that my my, my mind's right and that uh, you know that I'm focused and um, and that uh, you know everything's sort of everything's happy at home. And, and when that is, um, you seem to ride really well on the track. When you returned from Hong Kong in 2018, you were riding work on a roster system at three different tracks. You're still doing that. What's your current format? Yeah, no, I um, I ride work on Tuesday mornings for the for Team Hawks. Um, I've done that for a very long time, and uh, and then on a on a Thursday I'll head out to Randwick and ride for multiple trainers, whether it's Peter Snowden and Michael Friedman, John O'Shea, mm. um, Gay Waterhouse. Uh, they're all there, and then uh, on a Saturday I'll head out to back to Rose Hill to ride for for Chris Waller on a Saturday morning, and then every second Wednesday I usually head out to Warwick Farm and ride for Annabelle Neesham and uh, and Greg Hickman. So um, get to plenty of plenty of racetracks during the week and ride plenty of work. But I feel that um, you know that keeps me in a in a, a good a good system. I'm a real um, I, I like to have a you know a plan and and I like to be in a routine. And if I'm riding work three days a week, that's a pretty good routine for me. Mm. You and Nathan were both apprenticed to your dad, Kevin Berry, at Warwick Farm. Is it fair to say your dad took out a trainer's licence principally because his twin sons wanted to be jockeys? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. He was uh, he was obviously um, assistant trainer at a Paul Cave for the best part of 15 to 20 years, uh, as, as far back as I can remember. And uh, mm. Nathan and I obviously grew up under Paul's and Dad's guidance. Uh, it felt like we had two fathers growing up and uh, we had a really good upbringing there. But um, when it came to the time that, we were going to start our apprenticeship. Um, my father wanted us to be under his care, and and he wanted us to have the best opportunities uh, that that came our way. And he thought that he was the right person to do it and and make sure that we we stayed on track. He um, obviously been at Warwick Farm. He'd seen a lot of apprentices go um, through through the ranks, and he saw a lot of good apprentices uh, fall by the wayside, whether it was through getting into to drugs or alcohol or many um, other things. Um, so he just uh, wanted to keep a close eye on us. So he took out his trainer's licence with the help of a, a, a big, a great friend of ours, Mick Doyle. Mm. Um, and he, he's a great owner in racing, has been for a very long time. And uh, he was dad's main supporter at that stage and, and got us up and going. And, um, yeah, you know, between Mick Doyle and my father, they were definitely the backbone of the start of our career. Mm. Your dad tried his hand as a jockey. He rode about 50 winners before weight forced him out of the saddle. He was with Ray Guy as an apprentice. And, you know, I can recall your dad winning more than one race on a useful little horse called Royal Paint. Does he get a mention occasionally around the dinner table? He does. Um, yeah, Royal Paint came along in our household probably about, I reckon, maybe 20 years ago. Um, yeah. An old friend of dad sent him a, a nice framed photo of Royal Paint and Dad's not very – he's not one to talk about um, what he's done in the past. I think I've learnt more about my father in the last sort of eight years than I, I did ever growing up because uh, he's a very quiet person. If he's uh, accomplished anything in his life, um, not many people would know or he doesn't tell anyone about it. So uh, Royal Paint was a – it's probably the only horse I, I really know that he had a bit of success on and, and that's because mm. there's a photo of him in the, in the house on it. But um, – uh, he was. Uh, he enjoyed riding. Um, he enjoyed what being a jockey was all about, the hard work. And he started at a very young age, but obviously the weight scale um, back in those days were, you know, around 45 to 47 kilos. And 
and that was just way too light for him. So um, he, he finished doing that and then and started, as I said, uh, with, with Paul Cave, I, I think not long after. But it was um, – I, I was, you know, proudly uh, rode um, a Group 1 winner for uh, – for, um, Brian Guy, Ray's mm. son, so uh, many, many years later, which was very pleasing for, for my father as well. Mm. What horse was that, Tom? Uh, it was called Eagle Way, uh, owned yep. by John Moore and ended up, up going over to, to Hong Kong to, oh. to be trained by John. You won the Queensland Derby on him. <laughs> yes, that's correct, yeah. Mm, so, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a great yeah. thrill for me and a good, good, good thrill for our family and the Guy family as well. There was a defining moment in your early life when you were riding Paul Cave's pony Cisco one day in Riley's Paddock, right next to Warwick Farm Racecourse. Now, Cisco unloaded little Tommy Berry and then had the audacity to double-barrel you in the chest. Now, you had a lucky escape from injury, but you got one hell of a shock. Yeah, I did. It was um, it's probably my first sort of series, well, you know, wasn't even an injury in the end, but something that had happened with a racehorse that shocked me a little bit and scared me, I guess. And it um it, it took me away from uh, riding for quite a quite a while, probably six or eight months. And I remember my my dad saying, uh, he, he talks about it often that he, he never thought I'd get back on a on a horse ever again. But mm. I think it was just uh, through watching my my brother ride and and seeing how much he enjoyed it and. Um, I got a little bit jealous in the end that he was having so much fun, so I, <laughs> I got back, I got back aboard and um, gave yeah. it another try, and, and thank God I did because it's proved a great life for me so far. The Berry Twins became part of the Warwick Farm scenery, and uh, I imagine you and Nathan would have worked horses together many times. Were you and your brother equally enthusiastic in those early days? Yeah, we were. Um, we we both pushed each other quite hard, and and uh, Nathan was a very competitive person, uh, probably more so than myself, and uh, which got me to sort of probably perform um, above where I was at at that stage. So um, we we rode work together every day, pretty much every lot that we went out together, we, we rode work together, and and that was even when we went to um, different stables uh, mm-hmm. during the morning. If we went and rode for a Matthew Smith or a Clary Connors, it was. Yeah. They'd always put us in a pair, so mm. we um, we learn a lot off each other, that's for sure. And it, but uh, in saying that, we're still both very different riders. You had your first race ride at Hawkesbury in 2006 on a filly called Adversity for the late Mitchell Hudson. And, Tom, I've got to say, it was a fairly low-key debut. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I think Nathan had his, he did. He had his first ride on the same day for Gary Neal, and uh, I think we both missed the kick by a solid four or five lengths, and <laughs> and struggled struggled to beat a runner home, and um, yeah. we were both pretty deflated on the way out of the, from the races that day. <laughs> I never forget my father saying to me, "Boys, there's only one way, and that's up." So uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, <laughs> hopefully you can improve from there. But uh, mm. it was a, a pretty uh, mellow start, obviously. Many riders, when they have their first race ride, they uh, usually go out quite wide and start on a favourite and get a win of their first ride. And, mm. you know, that obviously wasn't meant to be for us, but it was a, a great learning curve. I think it took me about 16 rides to get my first winner for my father. So yeah. it was uh, a long wait. And that first winner was Hunter Ruby in 2007 and how appropriate it was that uh, the horse was trained by your dad. Yeah, trained by dad and owned by Mick Doyle, uh, which was very special for us. Um, 
I probably should have won on her two starts uh, in a row prior to the the win I I, I had aboard her at Newcastle. Um, mm. I'd given a couple of poor rides, and I remember my father saying to uh, to Mick, um, you know, how about we try someone else? He's he's had enough chances, Tommy, and and Mick said, no, no, he's your boy. Uh, it's our horse, and you put him back on, and and uh, hopefully he can get the win for us. So mm. Mick was uh, a very a uh, kind person and, and very supportive of Nathan and I, even at mm. the early stages where we were making a lot of mistakes. So if it, mm. if it wasn't for him, it would have been very hard to get on a roll. Yeah. Mick Doyle, one of racing's true stickers. Uh, the the other prime example of that uh, was that great little horse he owned, Show County, who won a million dollars, Tom. And Brian Wood was his regular jockey and uh, I think only once in the horse's career did they have to use another rider. It was an apprentice because there was a jockey strike on. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. No, that doesn't surprise me at all with Mick. He's he's a very honest, genuine person and uh, I was able to catch up with him over Christmas for a bit of lunch and um, he hasn't changed one bit. I saw you on the day, Tom, and that's when we first talked about this podcast. That's correct. The horse to introduce you to the big stage was a filly called Karuta Queen, trained by Neville Late. She had 20 starts. You rode her in 17 of them. Luke Nolan in the other three. You were on board when she won the 2011 Magic Millions Classic. I don't think you'd turn 20 at that stage. No, it was a very special moment for me uh, and a career-defining moment as well. She. Uh, she was unbeaten going into the Magic Millions and she absolutely smashed him in the wild Magic Millions. Um, and she was going into the, the Magic Millions at the Gold Coast as a very, very short price favourite. So I was probably, well, it was the first time that I'd been under that sort of pressure and mm. been in the limelight. I, I remember just having phone call after phone call from radio stations and newspapers. And mm. it's um, it was something that I, I didn't think I was handling quite well at the time, but I obviously did. And, and we got through the day quite well. But to do it for for someone like Neville Late, who, you know, had nice horses over time, but nothing like that filly, and no. uh, and the owners was uh, was a massive thrill for me, and I had my whole family there as well, which was just a it was a great day for all. Mm. She won a couple of stakes races later. She was a very fast filly, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. Um, I, I think I'd won a Group Three on a uh, Cox Plate night at Mooney Valley. Mm. Um, I'd run second to her on two occasions to Black Caviar, which mm. was another. A great moment for me uh, just run second to that great mare and uh, I, I got the leader up both times and, and see the big big mare come past me on, on two occasions which was quite special I'll never forget seeing mm. Luke, Luke Nolan do that uh, at Caulfield when when he beat me on that day so it was um, their moments you'll never forget so she she took me quite a long way that, that tough little filly. Indirectly you've got Karen McAvoy to thank for your first group one winner which was Epaulette in the 2012 Golden Rose. Karen could have ridden Epaulette, but he preferred the stablemate Albrecht, and you and he fought out the finish. Yeah, no, an incredible day. Uh, two people to thank, actually. Karen being one, and I remember they offered the ride to Damien Brown from Queensland, who was doing a lot of riding for Peter Snowden at that stage on the odd occasion, and um, mm. and Damien Brown decided he wanted to stay in Queensland for a full walk instead of coming to to City for one ride in the Golden Rose and um, mm. I was able to, to reap the rewards there but you know to do it for Peter Snowden who I obviously grew up with and um, 
he was a, a great supporter of mine from a really young age and, and still is now. He's one of the mainstays was a ride for it. It was a, mm. a special moment for us all. I believe you were unwell on the morning of the Golden Rose. Uh, was it the flu? I presume it was. And But you were feeling a bit sorry for yourself. And your dad said, get out of that bed and get to the races. Yeah, I, I called my father in the morning and I said, I, I'm not going to be able to go to the races today. I, was, I could barely stand up and he said, well, your brother will be there to help you get through the day. You get up and get there. And right. um, he, I won't take no for an answer. And uh, right. so Nathan drove me to the races. He, he got my gear ready for me all day and, and, and helped me out as much as he could. And um I tell you what, I wasn't feeling that sick after the race. It uh, no. it went away quite quickly. But um, yeah, that was a, another moment where my my old man sort of stepped in. He's he's quite tough, as we all know, and, and, yeah. and got me there on the day. And um, yeah, it was. I wouldn't have had that without him. No, the adrenaline kicks in too, Tom. Uh, you know, it can get you through a, a a hell of a lot of problems. Adrenaline. Yeah, it does. Obviously, all of us jockeys, most of us, we waste uh, on a regular basis and I think we're, we'd probably be the only sportsman that gets to the races, probably not in our best shape but then by the mm. time uh, the race comes about, as as you said, John, adrenaline takes over and mm. adrenaline's a, a wonderful thing. It's 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 like a drug that you can't get enough of and I mm. guess that's why we, we like to go out there and, and, and do what we do because it gives us such a great rush. Mm. The Roundwick Spring Carnival of 2012 gave you a massive kick along. You rode a horse called Fat Al for Gay Waterhouse in the Epsom. You'd won a three-year-old benchmark on him at Albury a few months earlier, but then next prep, Nash Rewilla took over. He won a couple on him in town, and the horse actually started favourite in the Epsom. His form was so good. He only had 52 kilos. Tom, is that the reason you got on him? Yeah, obviously I was stable rider along with Nash, but Nash was the heavyweight rider and I was the lightweight rider mm. at that stage. And, um, yeah, he'd had great form leading into it. Uh, Nash was a boarding man, as as he was um, Glenn Cadden Gold on the same day. I think Nash rode him in the Newcastle Cup to win. Mm. Uh, then I was able to ride both of those two on the same day that started favourite mm. and, and was able to get beautiful runs on them both and, um, you know, to, to ride it two group ones and the one day for mm. my boss at the time, Gay Waterhouse, who once again was a great supporter of mine and still is, um, was a special moment. And uh, to have, you know, looking back now, to have my brother there on the day and, mm. and if, you know, you never forget the times after winning no. group ones and you come back in and he's the first one there to jump on you and give you a cuddle. So it was a, <laughs> it was a special day. Now, Tom, those two group ones you're talking about were only 45 minutes apart. Talk about adrenaline. And in your heart, you thought Glenn Cadam Gold was a good thing in the Metropolitan? Yeah, I did. Um, I'd obviously done a bit of work on him at home, and so had uh, Mark Newnham, um, who is a very good judge of a horse. And I remember working on Tuesday morning, and I think Mark was on the partner or vice versa, and we said to each other, this horse won't be getting beat on Saturday. So uh, mm. I thought he was the better chance out of the two. So after winning the Epsom, uh, I came in after that and I said to Nathan, I said, I'm going to ride two group one winners today. And mm. uh, I said, because I can't see the other horse getting beaten. Going past the winning post the first time in the Metro, Nathan came along and sat outside me. I think he might have been on one of Chris Waller's. Mm. And uh, once I saw Nathan outside me, I knew he wasn't going to put any pressure on me. So it was a pretty easy watch from then on. <laughs> <laughs> 
About a month later, you got to ride Glen Caddam Gold in the Melbourne Cup, won by Green Moon. You finished about sixth. He ran a cheeky race. But, Tom, there's another eternal memory. The whole occasion must be overpowering for a young jockey. Yeah, no, it was. It was a, a nice long story before that. Even I'd, I'd obviously won the Met Trop on him. He went on to start favourite in the Caulfield Cup. Um, Gay told me that I wasn't going to get the ride that um, they chose to put Jim Cassidy on him, mm. um, which was obviously hard to take at the time, but I uh, took it well. And um, that's obviously what got me the ride back in the Melbourne Cup after he was disappointing in the Caulfield Cup. But I had uh, my whole family there on the day, obviously, uh, apart from my father who doesn't like to travel. Um, and Nathan had a ride for uh, Jeff Grimish and Chris Waller on the day as well. So mm. he was he was standing beside me in the jockey's room and, um, yeah, once again came in after the race, after running fifth, I think I was still in front of the 200 metres and, mm. and Nathan just jumped on me and gave me a massive, massive <laughs> paddle after the race and it was like I'd won but we're just that excited to yeah. run fifth in my first ride in the Melbourne Cup. It was uh, it was something I'd never that I'd dreamed of, sorry, as a kid yeah. and you just don't think that's ever going to happen. In the autumn of 2013, a special two-year-old filly came into your life by the name of Overreach, who finished up having only six starts, three wins, three placings, 2.3 million. You rode her in five of the six races. You won the Widden Stakes by a huge margin. You won the Mowat and Shondon by a huge margin. And I would imagine, Tom, at that stage of your career, you'd be thinking... God, I hope they leave me on this in the slipper. Yeah, no, I was. Um, she was obviously a very exciting filly. Everything she did at home was just top-notch. And I'd ridden good fillies in the past, obviously, with crew to queen, but overreach was a different level once again. She mm. um, she did things on a racetrack that I'd never never seen before and never felt before. It was a rain-affected track, Tom, and there was a very strong theory on the day that there was a bad patch near the inside on the home turn, but you took the gamble. Yeah, I walked the track um, with with Nathan before the race, and um, and he, uh, I said to Nathan, I think I'm going to stick to the rail, and uh, he said, Well, why wouldn't you? He said it, it walked quite well. Obviously, they'd raced off the rail the whole day, and mm. um, and the inside looked like a pretty good patch, and. And uh, so we, along with Nathan, I, I went and spoke to Gay just before the race and um, I told her that I want to stick to the rail and she said, well, if you've got the confidence to do that and you think it's the right thing to do, then then you do it. I'm, I'm very happy for you to do so. Mm. And it paid off handsomely. Well, that was an autumn carnival to remember because two weeks after the slipper, you won the Doncaster on Sacred Falls for Chris Waller. He came from last and he beat none other than Piero. In fact, Tom, three-year-olds ran one, two and three in that Doncaster and you got a miracle run from the tail of the field. Yeah, it was, um, it was a day I'll never forget. It was my first Group 1 winner for, for Chris Waller and uh, I remember going into the race obviously having a, a lot to do with Piero being part of Gay Stable. I was still stable rider there at that stage and mm. I knew how good he was and how hard he was going to be to beat and mm. um, I drew inside. I was slow away and I said to uh, I said well, Chris and I were talking before the race, and I said I'd love to find um, I'd love to find Nash's back in the run. And Chris said oh, I think you'll be a bit too bit too far forward of you in the run to, to do that. But good luck anyway. And uh, I was I was about three or four pairs behind um, 
Piero in the run, but for some reason everything just opened up coming to the corner and by the time I got 500, I was, I was directly on the back of, um, of Piero and, and he took me everywhere I needed to go. And obviously, uh, later on, we, we come to find out that, you know, um, Sagret Falls was just an absolute wet tracker and he swum through the track that day and obviously went on to do it again the following year as well. Yes, he did. Well, you had a lot on your mind on Doncaster Day because the day before, your mother, Julie, had a very nasty accident when working in the Warwick Farm stables of David Van Dyke at that time. Mum suffered a fractured sternum. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a news that I didn't really want to receive, especially the day before a big day. But I, I knew that obviously if anything happened to mum or dad, they're that tough. Uh, not really much, not much affects them. And I think she, um, she signed herself out of hospital that afternoon and, <laughs> and um, dad took her back up that night and she, uh, she got back out again and got in the cabin, came home. So she, she escaped twice and uh, yeah. she, I think she, uh, she was out cleaning the pool the next day. So she's a, she's a tough cookie mum. And mm. um, yeah, it's, it's amazing the emotions from one day to the other. You, mm. you, you, pretty upset and down because you, your mum's getting hurt the day before and you never like to see that and you're winning a, a Doncaster a day later. It's a, mm. a life's in a, it's a, it's a great level of that's for sure. One year later, Tom, your world was turned upside down when you lost your twin brother. Nathan had collapsed while riding track work at Cranji Racecourse in Singapore. He was flown to Sydney on an emergency medical flight he was diagnosed with Norse syndrome, an acute illness related to epilepsy, which took his life in April of 2014. You were at your lowest ebb when a certain horse came along to lift your spirits. And you've never forgotten him. He's by no means the best horse you ever rode or you've ever ridden, but he was very special to you at the time. His name was The Offer. Yeah, no, he was a he was a horse that got us through a lot of tough times. Um, it was obviously it was uh, yeah hard to put into words the, the the feeling that we're all going through at that point when Nathan fell ill. Obviously, he was in another country, so it was but we didn't we were only being told what was going on. It was it's always hard when you're not there. But um, we obviously jumped on a flight um, very quickly and, and got over there to to see him, and he obviously wasn't in a great way and. He, uh, he was he, he started to to get on the improve um, and my mum was over there with my uncle and a few friends Christian Reith and Candice and uh, so I flew back uh, to ride the offer in a group two uh, which he ended up winning and that was the lead up to the Metrop and that just sort of picked up a lot of our spirits um, leading into it and and then we uh, got back to um, I got back to Singapore after that and I think Nathan was having way over at the start over 100 seizures a day, uh, which was mm. incredible. And um, they said if they could get him down to having two or three, that they'd bring him out of a coma. And mm. um, there was one afternoon uh, where they said that he only had, I think, two or it might have even only been one seizure that day. Mm. Um, so that when we come back in the morning, um, we'd be able to be able to see him. They were going to bring him out of a coma. And, so we're obviously very excited. It was a, a great feeling and we got back to the hospital the next day and we all got taken into a room and um, they told us that his he's brain had um, dropped in his, his head overnight, which had cut off the circulation to his brain and 
Oh, he's um, he passed away, so that was uh, it wasn't really, it was obviously not the the news we we're expecting. It you go there hoping to talk to him, and then realise that you're never going to get to talk to him again. So it was a it was a pretty tough mm. tough one to one to cop. Mm. The tribute to Nathan came from all over the world, but perhaps the most moving of all was the fact that Racing New South Wales and the Australian Turf Club decided to introduce the Nathan Berry Medal to be awarded to the leading rider at the championships every year. Now, Tom, to put that into perspective, Scobie Breezley was 90 when the medal named in his honour was introduced and George Moore must have been close to 80 when he was accorded the same honour. Your brother was 23, a massive tribute. Yeah, Gets you a bit emotional just thinking about that. It's um, yeah, it's it's amazing the the um the touch that Nathan had on everyone's life. He was a kind person, um that, mm. that gave everyone the time of day. Didn't matter mm. who you were, and, mm. and that showed a lot. Um, more so after he passed, just uh seeing, you know that as you said, the tributes from not only here but all over the world, and then to mm. to have that medal named after him, it was a. I didn't think it was going to last forever. I thought it might have been just something that was going to happen you know, one year and then, then it was going to be forgotten about. But there's one thing for sure, and that's he's, he hasn't been forgotten about, not with anyone. And, mm. and um, if the Australian Turf Club and Racing New South Wales have that medal going every year, it's mm. it's something that really, uh, really, um, yeah, makes our family proud. Tom, you'd think the offer knew how you were feeling, wouldn't you, at the time? Because your first three rides on him were wins, the Mannion Cup, the Chairman's Handicap and the Sydney Cup, and he won all three by big margins. Yeah, <laughs> he, um, yeah, it was like he, he knew that something had to be done or yeah. uh, whether it was Nathan there riding with me, I'm not sure, but um, not only did he win, as you said, he went one by big margins. The way he won the Sydney Cup, mm. just and the way I rode him was probably, I've never ridden like that before with, so much patience and and confidence, and uh, I just mm. I, I I just knew we had to get the job done, and I knew we would no matter how or, or mm. what way it was going to happen. But um, everything seemed to just open up at the right time, and and he mm. got the splits and absolutely brained them. And it was just a it was a real fairy tale. It was not long after Nathan had passed, and it was probably one of the first times I'd ever had my mum and dad at the races together at the same time. So it was mm. uh, it was a very special moment. Mm. He only won one more race after that famous hat trick and that was a Bendigo Cup the following year ridden by Michael Walker. You do fancy a golden slipper, Tommy Berry, but um, we'll talk about your second win in the great two-year-old classic after this break on our Supernova Sound podcast. You only need to talk to country-based owners and trainers to realise that the Tab Highway concept has been a runaway winner for Racing New South Wales. The scheme met with some opposition when introduced in 2015, but it wasn't long before the Tab Highways captured the imagination of regional horsemen. Early days, trainers like Matt Dunn, Matt Dale, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the weekly highways, but now there seems to be a different winning trainer every week. For bush owners, the prize money has been a revelation, while punters love the highways as a betting medium. 
from a media viewpoint, the highways seem to throw up a good story most weeks. The TAB highways are a key component of the new face of New South Wales racing. Yes, you love a golden slipper. Two years after winning on Overreach, you did it again on Vancouver for Gay Waterhouse. He had only five starts, Tom. He won four of them. Ty Anglin won a Breeders' Plate on him. You won the Canonbury, the Todman and the Slipper and you travel three wide in that Slipper but you had cover all the way. Yeah, no, it was uh, – he, he was just one of those two-year-olds that was very – he was just superior to any other two-year-old that season. Um, his wins were dominant. Um, he was a horse that we felt would get over further but it just didn't matter. He was just – he was too electric for him over that stage, too big and strong. He, he looked like a three-year-old in the yard up against two-year-olds, and uh, he raced like that. And, and in the slipper, I'd, drawing wide, I was uh, I didn't even watch the barrier draw. I, I was in the shower upstairs, and, and my wife, Shani, yelled out to me. She drew the outside or close enough to it. And, um, I felt like crying at that stage. But, uh, you know, he, we got a beautiful run in the race, as he said, three wide with cover, and I was able to make my run when I liked. And um, he was just so dominant on that day. And... Uh, he was he's probably one of the best two year olds I've ever sat on. Mm. When it comes to Winks, Hugh Bowman has a mortgage on the bragging rights. But you can put a little bit of spice into a dinner party by announcing that you had two rides on Winks for a win in the Farlap Stakes and an unlucky fifth in the group one vinery stud stakes. Yeah, no, it was uh obviously didn't know how good she was at the time, but um to ride her in the file up stakes was looking back on it now a special moment for me and and one that I'll be able to tell my kids about when they grow up because um, they all know who Winks is uh, but they still don't understand that, that dad got to ride her um, mm. but uh, yeah I, I obviously went and rode her in the uh, the Vinery Stud stakes after that and was she was a very unlucky fifth on that occasion I got uh, held up up the top of the straight and she mm. she hit the line very strong and um, unfortunately that was the end of my association with her but Obviously, got the pleasure to watch her and ride against her on many occasions, and and what she did for our sport in Australia and and um, all over the world was incredible. And it's uh, you know I, I think I got just as much pleasure as being there to watch her on the day and ride against her as I did riding her. It's uh, yeah, she's a very special horse, one that I don't think we'll ever see again. In the autumn of two thousand and nineteen, you got to ride a Japanese horse called Kluger into fourth place in the Doncaster, terrific run. Now, Tom, just verify this. The story goes that connections were going to head straight home after the Doncaster, but that you talked them into taking on Winks at her farewell appearance in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes. Was that story true? Yeah, it was. Um, he was only over there to run in the Doncaster, and they were, they were very hell-bent about taking him home after that. Uh, whether they had other ideas of uh, races back home for him, but I said, "Oh, could you please just, you know, keep him here and and run him in the in the Cox Plate?" And and they said, um, "We can't win it. Winks is in it." And I said, "Well, running second to Winks, he's like winning." And and uh, <laughs> they said, "Yeah, that's true." And um, so I convinced them to keep him here. Uh, they were a bit worried about him running two weeks later because obviously horses over in Japan. Uh, their, rate, their runs are very spaced out and they usually run once a month, once every six weeks. Um, so him obviously running uh, 
running two weeks later was very unusual for them. But yeah. uh, he, they kept him here. He ran in the race, and for a moment there, I thought it was <laughs> going to be an upset. <laughs> Tom, I was, I was going to ask you that too. Just for one mad fleeting second, one stride, you look dangerous. <laughs> I know. I felt did you feel that, the same way? Yeah, I did. When when I'd sort of sucked up underneath him around the corner and Huey came wide, um, Cougar put this massive kick in and he let down as good as any horses ever for me in a group one. Yeah. And even Huey, I think, got a bit anxious because <laughs> he was just going through his gears and straight away he pulled the stick through and, and gave yeah. the mare a couple around the bum and yeah. she obviously went on to, to win the race quite well. But um, it, was, uh, it was a pretty exciting moment. For me and the connections, I've never came into a, a happier bunch of connections as I did to the Japanese owners. Oh. They were jumping and high-fiving and, you know, just so happy that they stayed along because I don't think they realised how good or how big Winks was until they were there to, to witness it on the day. Yeah. Uh, and, Tom, it's a $4 million race. The second prize money check was pretty healthy. I think it was the biggest check I'd received all autumn, so it wasn't too bad at all. No. Mate, we won't go into the well-documented story of the astonishing way in which Chautauqua finished his illustrious career. Let's just highlight the fact that you had eight race rides on this horse for five wins, every one of them a Group 1. The TJ Smith three times, the Manicato and the Hong Kong chairman sprint, you must still shake your head at some of the things this horse did. What about that third TJ Smith? Yeah, the third TJ Smith's the most incredible win I've ever been uh, bought a horse on. He mm. just, what he did on that day was incredible. And it's one replay. I'm not massive on watching replays over and over on mm. big races. I, I try and look more to the future instead of looking at the past. But that's one replay I've, Watched, I think, three hundred times, mm. um, and just the, the even the scenes after the race and how um, you know the race was described. Um, you know, Darren Flindell saying it was one of the biggest wins you'll ever see here at Randwick, mm. and that was on a day where uh, Winks had won as well. So um, you know, it was a it was an incredible win. He was a he was a beautiful horse. He was a lovely horse to have anything to do with, and mm. one that I miss to this day. But um, I've got a lot of fond memories of him and. Every time I go to Randwick, there's there's a couple of photos of Chautauqua when you walk into the jockey's room that you get to see. And, mm. you know, there's you look at the horses that are on the wall beside him. And I looked at them yesterday and you had Tullock, mm. Winks, Black Caviar, uh, Long Row, and horses like that. And, and he's, his name's up alongside the champions like that. So Yeah, I have Kingston Towns there, Tom. Kingston Towns there too, exactly right. I, oh, I miss him. But, yeah. uh, and Farlap is as well. So yeah. um, to have a horse that I had a close association with to be up mm. along names like that is just incredible. And it, it was only yesterday that I actually stopped and looked at those names and thought about that. So mm. We talked about adrenaline earlier. I can't begin to imagine the adrenaline rush you must have felt the day he won that third TJ Smith. He just took off as though he had a rocket strapped to his hind quarter, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, you know, when I pulled out at the top of the straight and, and got some clear running, I, I just thought that the, the margin was impossible. And then I got to yeah. the 200, and even though the margin was still very great, um, I could just feel him going through his gears, and yeah. it was like a V8, you know, just yeah. about to hit. 
hit their top gear and um and when he did it was just it was like and it was like it happened in slow motion it was very strange um but to go across the line and to see the you know the appreciation everyone had for him when he came back to scale um it was it was just incredible and the emotion on the hawks's face and and myself because he, he'd been beaten a couple of times leading up to that and uh you know it was just it was incredible mm. What a tragedy that he changed his mindset. Yeah, it was. And, you know, the, the, when I look back at it, what changed his mindset and what made him the way he was in the end is what made him so good as well. Mm. Um, he he was a, very much a loner. Um, he had a very strong mindset. And if he didn't want to do something, he didn't. And that's mm. why he obviously always raced at the back of the field because that's where he wanted to be and that's where he was happy. Um, but when it came to the time that he didn't want to jump out of the barriers, uh, so what made him as good as he was obviously worked against us in the end as well and, and were unable to change his mind there. Mm, well put. The Australian Derby was a nice little bonus for you on a horse called Tavago in 2016. Unexpected? Yeah, very unexpected. Well, for me it was anyway. It wasn't for Trent Bustleton and his team. Uh, he was very confident leading into the race and... Uh, you know, he just absolutely brained them on the day. Obviously, Trent's a very good um, trainer of stayers from New Zealand, and um, he's taken all before him since he's been here, and he just had this horse cherry ripe on the day, and I've got a beautiful run throughout and was able to save all the ground and uh, come out at the top of the straight, and, and he won by a massive margin. So um, he gave me a great thrill. You'd made many a hit-and-run raid to Hong Kong for one-off events, You'd won Group 1 races there. And when the offer came from John Moore to assume the mantle as his stable jockey, you couldn't get there quickly enough. There were good times, Tom, but overall it just didn't work out. No, it didn't. Um, I'd had a lot of three months since over there prior to that and had a lot of success. Uh, ridden, uh, I think I'd ridden eight Group 1 winners over there before I'd gone for the the stint with John Moore and and, mo- and most of them were for John, all of them were, um, and we just had a great association. Uh, I'd, I'd actually knocked back the job the two prior two years prior um, to him, and then I just couldn't hold off any longer, and I decided to go over there and mm. got off to not a bad start, but things just never got rolling. Um, John's uh, team probably didn't perform up to what we'd expected, and um, obviously with the way things are over in Hong Kong, it's, it's all about luck and I wasn't having much of it at that stage. So it went from good to bad quite quickly and, you know, I was, I was in a pretty bad place in the end mentally. It, was, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't something I was enjoying. I wasn't enjoying my riding in the end. I was copying a lot of uh, pressure and a lot of um, negativity from the press um, and, yeah, things just weren't going my way. But uh, I, I ended up, uh, finishing up with John Moore after I think it was seven months and going to a club jockey and mm. I got into a little bit of a role after that and was lucky enough to win a group one on Pakistan star just at the end of my, mm. my year stint there and decided that um, not so, not just for me but for my family it was it was a better option for us, it was a better life mm. for us at home and, and it was the best move I ever made coming back. Glad you mentioned Pakistan star. He wasn't every jockey's cup of tea, was he? He was quirky, he was headstrong but he was immensely talented. You only had a couple of rides on him. One of them was the Group 1 win you mentioned, the Chater Cup. But, Tom, you say he was something special when he was in the mood. 
And I think he's on your all-time list of top-class horses, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He'd probably be in the top three or four best horses I've ever put my leg over. Um, what he was able to do on his day, and Joe Marrera said the same thing, it was just freakish. Um, mm. He was very much like Shitaka in a way. He liked being left alone. He, mm. he didn't like um, being, um, you know, asked to do anything. He just wanted to go along with his business and, I think that's why I got the ride on him, actually, at the start, was because I'd had that association with Chautauqua and, and um, I sort of got a bit of a name for getting along with quirky horses and mm. he was another one. And um, what he did in the Queen Elizabeth prior to me winning on the Champions and Chater Cup and mm. Champions Chater Cup was just um, two of the best wins you'll ever see. So um, yeah, he, was a, he was a horse that uh, he made headlines for good and bad, but he, he's, a, he's a horse that I think many people will never forget. You and Shani had three kids under four years of age when you were in Hong Kong. In fact, I think Levi was born there, wasn't he? Yeah, he's a Hong Kong baby, um, so that's a good story for him to tell his friends when he gets older. You had a great association over there with a horse called Designs for Rome who gave you victory in a famous race, the QE2 Cup and a Hong Kong Classic Cup, and you've also got him on your list of good horses. Yeah, I do. I also won the derby on him over there. I think I won four or five great ones on, on Designs on Rome. It's probably five. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, he was a very unique horse. Um, he used to always sit at the back of the field, and I used to take off on him at the half mile, and I set him alight, and then I could sit on him for another 100 metres between the six and the 500 and then go again. So he was a horse that I always made two runs on in a race, and he was just so superior to any other horse over there once he got to the 2,000. Um, you know, before then, he, he was when he was at the mile, he was racing against uh, Abel Friend, who was just an absolute superstar over in Hong Kong at the time. Mm. Uh, but once Abel Friend got out to the, the 2000 or the 1800 to 2000, he wasn't able to match it with um, Designs and Rome. And mm. Designs and Rome became their best uh, middle distance horse for the next three seasons over there, I, I believe. Mm. If a tantalizing offer came from Hong Kong next year or the year after, would you be tempted? Oh, no, not not now. Um, I feel like I'm in a really good place at the moment with my riding and I've got some great associations and some ambitions here that I want to uh, conquer and I, I just don't think I could – I don't think it'd be fair to pick up my family and I moved them over to Hong Kong for a year once and they've only just – you know, they've been settled here for two years now. So mm. to do it again, um, you know, I've been reminded a few times now that I've, I've got a family so I've got to mm. not just put my, myself first, I've got to look look after him, and that's 100% right. So mm. I'd love to go over there eventually, uh, but I don't think it'd be to my, until right. my kids get a bit older. Yep. Tom, you, you're you back in Australia and getting back into rhythm and you badly needed a nice horse to ride. And you found one, courtesy of another old Warwick Farm mate, Greg Hickman. You rode Pirata 13 times all up, for four terrific wins, the Red Zell, the Shorts, the All-Age Stakes and the Sydney Stakes. Now, here is another classic illustration of what a smaller trainer can do with a decent horse. Yeah, and I think everyone's starting to figure out how good a trainer Greg is because he's he's not only done it with him now, he's got a, a good horse called 1111. Um, he's got a couple of other nice horses in the stable, Trevest and He's, he's a very good trainer, Greg, and, and uh, a horse like Pierrata was just one that put him on the map. He, 
he hadn't probably had a horse of that caliber and since sportsman i think it was from when i was a, a younger boy and mm. um you know he was just an absolute war horse pirata he, he was a horse that didn't like getting beat and if he was good enough he, he usually won his races he was uh he was one of those horses that was more a 1400 meter horse which you know there just wasn't many 1400 well there isn't many 1400 meter group ones around so Mm. Uh, 1200 was a little bit short of his best, but he was still electric to win the um, to win the Sydney Stakes on the same day as the the Everest mm. a few years ago, and uh, the mile was a little bit too far for him, as we we found out uh, earlier on in his career. So um, I believe if there was more 1400 meter Group Ones around, that he, he, his his uh, Group One record would have probably been greater. But mm. uh, he was just a, an absolute warhorse, a gentleman, one that I enjoyed riding a lot, and. Uh, to do it for a good family friend like Greg um, was something that uh, you know I hold in very high regard when I when I retire. His most agonising defeat, Pirata, was his second nature strip on a heavy track in the 2019 Galaxy. It is absolutely cruel that a horse can get beaten in a Group One by a thumbnail. Yeah, it's. Uh... I still dispute whether it wasn't a dead heat now. Gee, um, it yeah. was that close, but uh, yeah, no, that was a was a, cough, a tough one to cop. Um, mm. He was brilliant on that occasion. He had a lot of ground to make up, and he just savaged the line. And I, when I pulled up, James and myself, we we thought if if it wasn't a dead heat that I'd won it. And so when it went over to James, even James felt it felt a little bit bad if that was possible but um, mm-hmm. it was uh, it was one that I would have been very happy to share with James that's for sure what do you mean if that was possible oh well he takes no prisoners I don't think any of us do usually but uh, yeah. I think we just both accepted the fact that it was a, a dead heat and then when it came out that one of us won it was a uh, yeah. yeah it was it was hard for the other one to cop you had only one ride on a horse called Osborne Bulls but it was possibly the most courageous ride of your career. You ran third to Red Zell and Trapeze Artist on a heavy nine in 2018 in the Everest. Probably cost you two lengths, angling to the outside fence in the straight, but he definitely accelerated when you got out there. The move paid off. Yeah, he did. Um, you know, that was a plan that, uh, myself and James and Dominic Byrne, his uh, form analyst, came up with. We all went out and walked the track, and I'd obviously been known for, for making beelines to the outside fence on the odd occasion over the last couple of autumn carnivals. And uh, so James knew that I, I wasn't afraid to do it if, if that's something that we wanted to do. And um, we walked the track, and felt it was noticeably better out there. And we, we were on a horse that wasn't obviously fenced in the market, so there was no pressure. To, 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 to go out and do something like that. And Osborne Bulls was obviously more comfortable being on the firmer ground and mm. it was noticeably better out there. And and as you said, John, once I did get out there, he changed the legs and it was on a different horse. He, uh, he really motored to the line and, and gave the, the whole team a massive thrill to run third in, in mm. our biggest race here in New South Wales at the moment. And, Tom, like the uh, race we spoke about earlier, the Queen Elizabeth Stakes, the prize money for third in the Everest would have greatly pleased Sheikh Mohammed. Yeah, it's I'm um, sure Sheikh Mohammed's got a lot of money, but uh, still a third in the uh, third in the Everest definitely would have uh, helped pay a few more bills. Your wife Shani certainly speaks the language of racing because she's a daughter of former successful jockey John Nisbet, now training, and her sister Kayla 
is one of the most in-demand riders in the southern districts. Yeah, no, she's um, she comes from a strong racing background. As you said, her, her father was a, a very good rider uh, when he was younger. Um, he was fighting out premierships as a, an apprentice with Darren Beeman, and he still reminds me now that he, he beat Darren Beeman in the premiership one year, so that's his sort of claim to fame, Johnny. But um, <laughs> Kayla's, uh, Kayla's a well-renowned rider and well sort of rider down in the southern districts, as you said. She's, uh, she's a very a lovely person and a... She's got a very good head on her shoulders, as all the Nisbets do have, and um, she's doing very well for herself. So, um, Shani's uh, she's she's very well uh, prepared uh, for anything mm. that comes her way when it comes to a jockey's lifestyle. Had the pleasure of recording a podcast with Kayla, uh, maybe six or seven weeks ago, and I agree, she is a lovely girl, as you said. And if anybody missed that one, just scroll back and have a look. Kayla Nisbet, she's a very good listen. Now, it was Shani, Tom, who recognised a change in Tommy Berry a couple of years ago, a change that signified perhaps a delayed reaction to Nathan's death and a sign that the pressure of Sydney racing might have been getting to you a little bit. Yeah, no, she'd um, it'd been something that she'd noticed for quite a while and obviously I knew what was going on, but I, I bottle a lot lot up and don't like to talk about my problems or issues. Um, and, yeah, it took a while. I was I was going through a, a, a stage a couple of years ago, as you said, where um, and it went, went for quite a while where I was um, – my, my preparations going to the races weren't very good. I was I actually started drinking a lot of alcohol um, to help me get through through my problems and some issues that I was going through. Uh, obviously, passing a Nathan was, was one of them that I probably hadn't dealt with that that greatly and um mm. and as you said just the demands of racing in sydney and i think hong kong obviously didn't help having a tough time over there and i probably all just bottled up when i got back and um i was going down a road that wasn't wasn't obviously good for me and, and definitely not good for our family and, um shani saw a, a massive change in myself and i obviously wasn't the person that she she met um when we were when we were younger and and um she she just sat me down one day and said that she wanted that person back, which is a very tough thing to hear for, for any person uh, from their partner. And um, so I went and seek some help from a, a sports psychologist about that and, uh, a few times, and uh, he, he's been a, a great help to me and something that I still um, s- still do and I still go and see him now. And uh, he just it's just someone different to talk to, someone that uh, they're not close to you, so um, you yeah. don't feel like you're being judged, even though you never get judged by your mm. family, but. You feel like you're going to, so um, yeah, it's it's been a, a great help to me over the last two years. Tom, your personality and good looks are exceeded only by your wisdom. <laughs> That's a very good saying. <laughs> I know the kids love all the animals you keep on the farm. Most of all, a very patient, a very tolerant, and a very long-suffering Shetland pony called Harry. Yeah, no, he's um. Harry's a he's he's a lovely pony. He's, he's very cheeky, but um, he puts up with our four kids quite well. And uh, he, he's one of them horses you you don't necessarily have to ride him every day. You could have a month where you yeah. don't even put a put a kid on his back, and as soon as you do, he's very placid. And um, mm. he's been a part of our family for for four years now. And mm. he's got a couple of little mates in in the paddock with him that are donkeys, and uh, <laughs> he's he's got a very good life at home. And and the kids love love going out and spending time with all of them. 
Yeah. They're not a couple of slow ones you've ridden down the track. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been offered a, a few slow ones and I've already told people I've got a couple of donkeys out the back I don't need any more. So uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the world's full of them, unfortunately. Now, Tom, give me an update on the ages of the kids. Um, so we've got uh, Caden, who's five. Uh, Charlie's just turned uh, four. And then you've got Nate, which is two. Mm. Uh, no, sorry, not Nate. No, Levi's two and yeah. Nate's one and a half. Mm. So. You haven't been uh, idle, have you? <laughs> no, no, they're um, they're growing up fast. We went for a few years there where we're all quite busy, but uh, we've definitely um, hung up the shoes now. I think that's for sure. Yeah, well, Tom, when I hear those ages, uh, I realise that Shani is the unsung heroine of the camp. <laughs> yeah, no, she is. Um, Shani's such a good mum, and you know, growing up, she always wanted a, a big family because she's part of a big family, and. Uh, she got that, even though it was uh, something that I was a bit reluctant about. I only wanted a couple of kids, but we've got four now and they're beautiful. Mm. And Shani just hand- handles it with so much ease. She's a very patient person, uh, which is mm. obviously why she's with me. Uh, we're very opposite in that, that respect, but um, our kids will obviously grow up and, and realise one day how, they, how lucky they are to have a mum like Shani. She's, a, mm. she's an incredible person. What are the secret ambitions? yet to be realised as a professional jockey. Is a premiership important? Yeah, premiership's very important to me. Um, all the best jockeys have won one. Um, I've obviously had a great success in group ones, but to, to win a Sydney premiership is something that's eluded me so far. And, mm. and it's very, very hard to do, especially in Sydney with the likes of uh, Bowman, McDonald, Ruwilla and, and McAvoy at the moment. Mm. Uh, they're very strong. And apart from James, the other three are a, a bit older than me and, um, got a lot more experience, but uh, I'm going well this season. This season's a season that I've really concentrated on uh, being consistent. Uh, to to win a city premiership, you've got to be very consistent. It's something I've lacked in the past, and whether that's through um, not being 100%, um, you know, on the ball, which mm. with, with issues I've had over the last couple of years, I'm not sure, but I feel like I'm in a really good place, and I'm in a place where. I'm getting the right support to, to go mm. close in a Sydney Premiership, but uh, that's definitely right at the top of my list. And then obviously mm. you go to a, a Melbourne Cup, Cox Plate yeah. and Everest. They look quite good on the uh, trophy cabinet as well. <laughs> Wouldn't they? <laughs> well, it's been a delight, Tom, to engage in a very comprehensive interview about the life and times of Tommy Berry. You know, one minute you're unceremoniously dumped and double-barrelled by a fat pony called Cisco, and the next you are firmly ensconced among the top bracket of Australia's jockeys. It's been a great ride, hasn't it? No, it has. It's uh, Racing's provided a great life for me and a great life for my family, and one that I can't repay them back for, and uh, it's an incredible industry to be a part of and one that I feel blessed to be a part of, and um, it's uh, given me a lot of thrills in my life and a lot of ups and downs, but um, I, I owe everything to the industry that I'm a part of and, and I'm very happy to give back to it when I can. So mm. it's, been a, it's been a pleasure to be on your show as well, John. Thank you, Tommy. Well, as I said earlier, you've given a lot back and that includes the Sydney Racing Media. You've always been accessible and very gracious with your time as you have today. It's been a delight, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Until next time. Thanks, John. Take care.